Pastor Dan is on vacation, hopefully enjoying this great weather, and he's given me a passage on marriage for today's message from 1 Peter. It's one of those passages that you tell someone that you're preaching, and they go, oh, well, uh, good luck. And, And you know, Dan actually even gave me an out. He said, we could rearrange things, but I told him, no, that wasn't necessary. I'm not afraid of the Bible. I'm not afraid of God's word, and we shouldn't be. God's word is the word of life to us. Once, when Jesus said some hard things, many of his disciples left him, and they did not follow him any longer. And Jesus said to the 12, are you going to leave too? But Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is the Word of God, the Word of life, and the Bible is the testimony of God's people and Jesus' closest followers. It's been handed down to us as a faithful witness to who God is and what he has done, and especially about Jesus, his Son. Recently, I've been reading through the Psalms. One of my mentors talks about reading five Psalms a day, and so I've been trying that out. And this week, it included Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm, the longest chapter in the whole Bible, 176 verses about how wonderful God's word is, how wonderful his commands, his laws, all that, how it is sure and true and gives us life. God's word is good. It's trustworthy. It's true. And so let's let it speak to us today, and let's pray. Lord God, may my words be faithful to your word to us. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and wills to act upon the word you have for us. Amen. So as you may recall, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter over these last weeks, and we've been looking at what the good life is. And for lots of us, having a good marriage is a significant part of a good life. Of course, Jesus was never married, and there's no doubt he had a good life. Paul was never married, and he even said his singleness was a gift from God, which is a perspective that is all too often missing in our society and even in the church. Paul said he was glad to be single. He was satisfied. He found it rewarding. It wasn't a punishment. He didn't feel like a second-class citizen. It didn't mean there was something wrong with him or he was somehow deficient or incomplete. He truly saw it as a gift, a good way of life. But Paul also recognized that for many, marriage is an important part of life. And that's why he talks about it a number of times, and so does Peter. And in fact, Peter is the one disciple that we know for sure was married. So we come to the third chapter of 1 Peter, and we're going to hear what he has to say about marriage. Now, there's no denying this is undoubtedly one of the trickier passages of the Bible. It's a passage that can be hard to know what to do with in our 21st century American world. And so before we get into it, it's worth it to take a moment and consider how we're going to approach this. Is it just good advice that we can take or leave? Or is it full of rules with a capital R? that we better follow to the letter. I think it's fair to say that the biblical passages on marriage are some of the most misused and abused passages in the Bible. 
And sometimes they can seem like the anti-gospel, like they're not good news, at least not for everyone. On the other hand, sometimes what the Bible has to say about marriage is just tossed aside as if it's irrelevant to us today. They're explained away to the point where they don't have anything to say to us at all. And neither of these approaches works out well. Reading what the Bible says about marriage as ironclad rules or simply writing it off as outdated isn't the way to go, but there is a more excellent way. But here's the thing, it takes work. It means reading carefully. It means taking the context into account, both the the context within the letter, in the Bible, and the historical context. And it means letting the text be the text, not what we wish it was, not what we wish it might say. And all of that is harder than just taking it as rules or just throwing it out. At the outset, I want to say that this passage we're about to look at is, is less about marriage and more about how to be a Christian in an unbelieving society. This is really important. This is not just generic, timeless advice about marriage. Rather, what we're going to see from Peter are highly specific instructions based on a specific situation and a specific time and place. Christianity was starting to spread in this pagan world, in the Roman Empire, where people worshipped a variety of gods. And it was a society where the husband was pretty much completely in charge of his family's religious and social life. And it was at the same time that some women were becoming followers of Jesus while their husbands weren't. Okay, and one more thing. We can't just drop into this passage without hearing the overall context of what Peter is saying in the letter. So first we need to get that in place. His words on marriage are set up way back in the chapter before. And really these few verses set up everything that follows in the rest of the letter. He says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. So in these three verses, Peter sets out three commands. Abstain from sinful desires. Live lives of virtue. Submit to authority. Everything else he says in this letter is going to flow from these. Abstain from sinful desires. Live lives of virtue. Submit to authority. And so we're going to be coming back to that as we see what he has to say about marriage. So let's get into it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, 
Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Do you know someone with a perfect marriage? Maybe it's you. Maybe you have the perfect marriage. You and your spouse agree on absolutely everything. You share the same priorities, outlooks, desires, hopes, and dreams. Maybe you have differences. I mean, how could you not? But you complement each other perfectly. Each of you having different strengths. Each one stronger in ways the other isn't. Each one making up for the other's weaknesses. It's a dream come true, right? Such a marriage is a wonder. But we also know this plain truth. Um, There are no perfect marriages because there are no perfect people. Marriage has never been easy. It's anything but a walk in the park. It requires hard work and patience and forgiveness and hard conversations. It means sacrifice. It means putting up with the foibles and follies of another person. And your spouse will have to put up with yours. You won't always get your own way. I was recently coaching a friend who is going to be performing his first wedding. And I prepared a whole bunch of my marriage materials for him on how to conduct a wedding ceremony, all the things you got to think through, you got to plan for, you got to work out with the bride and the groom. And he just started to get this deer in the headlights look. And I had to reassure him, it's all going to be okay. But think about it. If there are hundreds of details to work through for a single ceremony, how many more are there for a lifelong marriage? A wedding is an event that lasts for a few hours when you take into account the the ceremony and the reception, but a marriage is something that's meant to last the rest of your life. In fact, this is true. I just figured this out. On February 14th of this year, my wife, Meredith, and I had been married for exactly 10,000 days on Valentine's Day. And each day has been better than the last. No, you know that's not how it works. Or does it? I I need Lacey. Where's where's Lacey? Come on down. This this is how it is. This is this is how it is. My love. There's only you in my life. The only thing that's right.
hated that song when it came out. But, but I was nine, so I didn't like the mushy stuff. It, you know, no matter, how, no matter how many times you spin that song from Lionel Richie and Diana Ross, the reality of a life of endless love will never be unending, uninterrupted bliss. I once read that uh, marriage is like running a very small, very boring nonprofit. <laughs> you have a thousand details to handle, and most of them aren't very exciting. Buying groceries, paying the rent, the mortgage, dealing with the insurance and the taxes, and paying off those student loans. You got to pony up for the kids' piano lessons and buy them new soccer shoes. And then it's time to get the house painted, and you got to find someone to fix the leak in the roof. Week in and week out, someone's got to do the laundry and mow the lawn. And every day you got to eat, and dinner doesn't cook itself. Sure, you take that trip, you go on that vacation, you have that nice dinner out. Maybe you even have the romantic getaway. But a lot of being married is decidedly unglamorous. You get to experience the highs and lows of each other, of, of life with each other. You get to see each other raw and unfiltered and often at each other's worst. That's why I think the traditional marriage vows are so perfect, because they're so real. They're so real. They tell the truth. They don't sugarcoat things. They say, for better or for worse, richer or poorer in sickness and in health. And then there's that other profound, critical line, forsaking all others. Marriage will have good times and bad times. Even in a marriage of endless love, no one is guaranteed a life of endless bliss, a life of every day better than the last. We don't leave this world without dying, and most of us will deal with sickness and sometimes serious sickness at some point. Committing to another person means committing to facing all of that together. It's not easy, but it's good. So no wonder there are so many books on marriage, so many courses and seminars, so many counselors, and it's no wonder that the Bible weighs in as well. And what do we see? Wives, submit to your husbands. Huh. Why is this the word that Peter gives? In our day and age, when, when it comes to marriage advice, we tend to focus on communication and learning to really listen to one another. We talk about managing expectations and giving each other space. A few years ago, Meredith and I uh, went to a marriage conference that was incredibly helpful. And let me tell you, Wives Submit to Your Husbands was not on the agenda. The event was put on by the Gottman Institute, which I highly recommend. And one of their big ideas is what John and Julie Gottman called the four horsemen of the apocalypse of conflict in marriage. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, stonewalling. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics of any of that because it's, it's way beyond the scope of this passage and this message. But the idea is that those behaviors are toxic to a marriage and toxic to any relationship, really. And learning all about that was eye-opening, and it, it transformed our relationship. It really helped our marriage. And if you are struggling in your marriage, I would encourage you to check out the things that the Gottmans have to say. They've got lots of books. But like I said, you're not going to find much reference to this passage from 1 Peter and most modern marriage counseling materials. And to be sure, this passage isn't the end-all and be-all of how to have a good marriage. Communication and managing expectations and recognizing those toxic behaviors and doing something about it, that's all really important. We need to remember what Peter is focused on. 
living godly lives in the midst of an unbelieving society. And remember his three overarching commands. Abstain from sinful desires. Live lives of virtue. Submit to authority. In the rest of the letter, he goes on to work all of that out in broad strokes, what it looks like in real life. Last week, Dan talked about how that plays out in regards to living under the authority of the government and how it plays, plays out between servants and masters. And now we see Peter address husband and wives. And in particular, he addresses wives of unbelieving husbands. Of course, he is concerned with how Christians live in society that's, un, that's an unbelieving world. And so just as he tells Christians to submit to those in authority in the Roman Empire, the governor, the emperor, even though those guys aren't Christians, now in the same way, he says Christian wives are to submit to their husbands even if their husbands don't believe, even if they worship other gods. Do you see how this is not a blanket statement of wives submit to your husbands in every last little detail of life? Make whatever he wants for dinner. He gets to hold the remote control all the time. Do whatever he tells you. No, this is not a blanket rule for any and every conceivable situation. Can I have an amen? <laughs> Instead, Peter is saying to Christian wives, don't think that because you are a Christian now, you don't have to listen to your husband. Jesus isn't some trump card you can play and now you can ignore his wishes. On the contrary, show him respect. Win him over with your godly behavior, which is exactly what Peter has been saying all along through this whole letter. Remember, he said earlier, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so now he says, wives in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Peter is concerned with our witness to the world, and in this particular case, with the witness of believing wives to their unbelieving husbands. And so he says, submit, as in show respect, honor your husband. Don't think you can just do whatever you want because you're a believer and he's not. Catherine Gonzalez has written a lot about the early church, and she says this, when we read the passage in the New Testament about, that deal with Christian ethics, for households, we need to remember the situation for Christian wives and for slaves. The goal was to keep them safe so that their witness could continue without creating unnecessary antagonism. Peter then goes on to talk about not getting all consumed with outward appearances, elaborate hairstyles and jewelry and fine clothes. And it's been tempting for some to turn all of that into a bunch of rigid rules for us to follow. But Peter's point isn't that we should all go around in sackcloth and ashes all the time. Just as his hope for believing wives is that they can that win over their husbands without words, with purity and reverence, as he says, so he hopes they can be known for a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Rather, 
than being known for how fashionable they are. One's inward character is more important than one's outward appearance. That's what he's getting at. Now, we could say a lot more about this, but I want to move on to Peter's word to husbands. He says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, we can't help but notice he doesn't use the word submit here. In our modern egalitarian society, we might wish he had. But what does he say? He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate. In the same way. Now, he said the same kind of thing to wives. In the same way, submit. In the same way is what? What's he getting? What's he getting at? This goes back to those verses that set up the whole letter that we're to abstain from sinful desires, live lives of virtue, submit to every authority. This is the way. When Peter says, in the same way, that's what he's getting at. That's what he's talking about. This is the way. You know, that, that became a uh, popular catchphrase recently in the old Star Wars world. This is the way. But even though Star Wars happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the idea of the way was long before Star Wars. When you read the book of Acts, the earliest Christians were called followers of the way. Following Jesus was following the way. A way is a path or a route. It's a pattern or a method. It means a way of life. It's more than a set of beliefs. It's a set of practices. Following the way means not just talking the talk. It means walking the talk. And specifically here, Peter is talking about the way of Jesus in terms of suffering and submission. In the passage we looked at last week where he addresses slaves and masters, he says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is the way. And this applies across the board. Christ has set an example for us, and we are to walk in his steps. And this means we can expect to suffer for our faith, at least on some level. And it certainly means we will have to submit to authority. And so even to husbands in the ancient Roman world, the men who had a lot of authority and power, who expected everyone in the household to submit to them, even to them, Peter says, in the same way, the way of godliness and virtue, the way of suffering and submission, in the same way, be considerate of your wives. Now, Peter isn't done with husbands. He has another bombshell to drop on them. But... This one can be kind of easy for us to miss because often when we look at this passage, we get hung up on how Peter refers to wives as the weaker partner, or more literally, literally the weaker vessel. And I'm not going to dwell on this long, but I'll just point out this. Some interpreters think that Peter is simply means that men are generally physically stronger than women. Others point out how men at that time, and even in many ways today, generally had more advantages in society than women did. In any event, Peter is not saying that women are inherently inferior to men. He is not saying that. Can I have another amen, please? <laughs> In fact, this leads right to the next thing, this bombshell he's about to drop on them. He says to husbands, treat your wives as heirs with you of the gracious gift. 
of life. Now, that, may not, that might not seem like a big deal to us, but let me tell you, that's a revolutionary word. Who is an heir? The firstborn son. That's who. The firstborn son. Not the daughter. The firstborn son. Not the secondborn, thirdborn, or any of the others. It's the firstborn son is an heir. That's how it worked in the ancient world. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. As believers in Jesus, as followers of the way, we are all heirs. So husband, that means your wife is an heir with you. Your wife is an heir just as much as you. Your wife is as important as you. And if you don't believe this, if you don't treat your wife as your co-heir, then, Peter says, your prayers just might be hindered. Wow. Let's bring this all home. Peter's main concern is how we as believers are to live in the midst of an unbelieving society. And so he exhorts us to abstain from sinful desires, to live lives of virtue, to submit to authority. We do this by following the way of Jesus, who is not only our savior, but our example. Our modern American society isn't the same as the Roman Empire, of course. Gender roles aren't as, as uh, distinctly defined. Husbands generally don't get to dictate the religious practices of their families. Things are much more egalitarian than ever before. But that doesn't mean Peter doesn't have anything to say to us. You know, sometimes we make a distinction between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, and that's a great thing to keep in mind as we read a passage like this in the Bible. Submission is a biblical virtue for all of us. We are to follow the example of Christ, winning others over with gentleness and godly behavior and grace instead of arguing or causing strife. This is the way for all of us. So you remember those lines from Endless Love that Lacey got to sing? My first love, your every breath that I take, your every step I make. That might be about romantic love in the song, but that's a good description of the life of following Jesus. He is our first love, in whom we live and move and have our being, and whom we follow step by step. I'd like to close with these words from Philippians. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's stand together as the worship team comes on up and we will close with a song. What a great prayer that is. Let us, let us go in that spirit, consecrating our, our lives to the Lord. Go in his peace, in his grace, following him step by step in the example that he's led for us.
Go in grace.